You can have a seat. Bye, Sky. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Uh, I just want to do a brief announcement. And uh, as far as I can tell, as far as I think I can know my own heart, I think this is just a pastoral announcement. Uh, but one of the things that we do here is uh, we record the sermons uh, that we preach most of the weeks. I'd say we bat about 90% on the year of getting everyone recorded. And we put it on a podcast for our church. We also put it on our website. Most of the time it makes it to Facebook and stuff like that. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, a huge part of what I do as, you know, as your pastor is, is study and prepare these sermons. And I don't, that doesn't mean they're good. It just means, like, that's a big part of, you know, what you guys support me to do. And, uh, and it's, I think it's a big part of our, our life together as a church family is, you know, for better or worse, the sermons are, are something that we gather around, whether it's me or Jeff or Lou or whoever preaches. Um, and so if, if we miss a Sunday or something like that, it's obviously not the, the end of the world. But I, I just uh, encourage you earnestly to, to seek out uh, the, the sermon recording on one of those avenues, a podcast or a website or a Facebook page, uh, just so... Uh, you know, even if you hate it, even if you don't like it, you know, you can uh, engage with it as a, as a church family. And I know there's way better people to podcast in, in terms of preaching and stuff like that. It's no claim that they're good, just that as a church family, we want to be chewing on the same stuff together. Uh, and I think that that will help create uh, unity and just uh, ways for us to sharpen each other. So announcement over. You know how I feel about doing those before the sermon. Uh, well, we are uh, beginning or continuing our Sermon on the Mount series. And I feel like this week, and last week uh, have been great examples of uh, why I delayed preaching on the Sermon on the Mount so long. I don't know if you remember, it was about a year ago we were about to launch into this, this stuff last summer, and I punted for like three sermon series until this past February. And uh, I, I, it's pretty hard. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. If it feels weird or feels hard being here for 35 minutes on a sermon, uh, it's been even harder sitting in it all week because the Sermon on the Mount is just some 200-proof, uncut Jesus, it just Jesus in, in uh, maybe his most pure form. I don't know how you feel when you read the Gospels, uh, but I often feel the way I think the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia felt around Aslan, the big lion, because they're drawn to him, they love him, they see how good and beautiful and powerful he is, but they're also a little nervous, a little scared, and not quite sure, and they, you know, they ask the question, the classic quote, is, is he safe? Is Aslan safe? But what does Mr. Beaver say? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Jesus, isn't, Jesus is good, but he's not safe. And kind of what we're looking at in the Sermon on the Mount is that nothing in our life is safe when Jesus comes in, comes into the picture. Everything is kind of up for grabs. What, what is, how does the, the old song go? Love so amazing, so, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And then we also have a dwarf who talks a big game about Aslan and what he's going to say to Aslan, and he also doesn't believe Aslan, kind of classic atheist. I, I hate, I don't believe in him, and I hate him. And then this dwarf finally gets uh, a face-to-face with Aslan. What does Aslan do? Huge lion jaws, picks up the dwarf, thrashes him around, and, and puts him back on the ground, and then says something like, we're going to be friends, Mr. Dwarf. <laughs> Did anyone else ever feel that way with Jesus, where he feels like he kind of picks us up and he thrashes us, and it's... It's kind of overwhelming, but at the end of the day, there's, a, there's an offer of friendship. What I'm trying to say is that if some of this Sermon on the Mount stuff is uncomfortable, it's okay. 
and maybe even should feel uncomfortable because there's just nothing quaint or pedestrian or coffee cup verse about the Sermon on the Mount. There's no simple list of rules that we can just say, for sure, Jesus, I got that, and then go about our day because Jesus is coming after our whole person. He wants whole people. He says in chapter 5, Therefore, be whole, be complete, as your heavenly Father is whole. He goes after our hearts, our inner lives. He goes after our behaviors. Every single aspect of our lives, our food, our money, our sexuality, our relationships, our marriages, the way we speak, how we spend our time. So, if, again, if you're uncomfortable, join, join the club. Uh, just imagine spending all week uh, with these uncomfortable passages and asking these hard questions over and over and over again. But I also hope that we feel the draw and the goodness of what Jesus is inviting us into. The title of our series in the Sermon on the Mount is Human Flourishing. That Jesus is calling us out of cycles of dysfunction, uh, making mud pies in the gutters, and he's calling us away to a vacation at the beach, to use another C.S. Lewis quote. And today, in particular, Jesus is calling us to consider our precious. Uh, that's right, you're getting Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia in one sermon, so hold on tight. Jesus is calling us to consider that we are all kind of like golems. We have a precious that shapes our lives. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, Gollum is this wiry little green creature whose entire life orbits around this one ring. Everywhere he goes, even how he looks, what his body is like is all shaped by the precious. And Jesus is asking us today, what is your precious? Or in the words of our sermon text in Matthew 6, what do you treasure? What does your heart treasure? And that brings, brings us uh, to our first point, which is the whole point of everything all the time everywhere. And that's over the top uh, to, to make a point that what you love defines you. Oh, I grabbed the wrong Bible. Hang on. So flip back in your Bibles a, a couple chapters to Matthew 22. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, this is on page 1535, down at the bottom. Before we read it, I want us to see that the Bible teaches that humans, first and foremost, are lovers, are desirous, affectionate creatures. We aren't, first and foremost, thinking beings, though we do think. We aren't first and foremost believers or believing things, though we obviously believe things. We aren't first and foremost instinctual animals, though obviously we do have instincts. But we see in the doctrine of what man is, is that God created humans in his image out of the overflow of love that he has within himself in the Trinity. And because we bear his image, humans can't not love. We can't not have treasures or desires or deep affection for something. We're always pointed somewhere, pointed at something or someone that we love. And I think one of the clearest ways that we see this is in Jesus' greatest commandment. So look at Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. It says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with the question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Do you hear the incredible weight of this passage? It's so common, but this is our King, God, and Savior in the flesh telling us this is the most important thing. This is what matters. This is what everything in Scripture points to. It's interesting and kind of uncomfortable that it's, you know, it's not know this theology or do this certain behavior, though knowing theology and living a certain way is obviously an outflow of what we love. But the whole point of everything is to love, or to say it another way, treasure God with everything that we are, our whole being. And I want us to connect the words love and treasure this morning. Because I think it, it helps us understand what love is in a, in a culture where we love tacos and our wives, uh, at least verbally, the same, you know, the same. When Johnny, my son, was first born, I, of course, by the grace of God, fell into the glorious vortex of fatherly affection. And, you know, I made up songs and said all kinds of goofy things. I love you, my precious baby. I want to eat your face. I'd sing all kinds of silly things. And I, and I remember early on, because, you know, obviously he did nothing early on except for, you know, poop and cry and eat. What, what does it mean when I say that I love Johnny? What, what, am, I, what, am, I, what, what am I trying to communicate? And while love is a, bi- is a big topic, and this isn't all of love necessarily, uh, it's that I treasure him, that he's precious to me, that I see the incredible value and extravagance of him. It was kind of kind of like Gollum when it came to Johnny. Like I think that's one of the reasons why babies don't remember stuff because all the goofy things their parents might say to them. I treasure and delight in Johnny. And so we see loving God with everything that we are—heart, soul, and mind. Doesn't nec- God's not trying to give us like a buck up and muster some love? He's saying that deep affection, treasuring. God is, is the way, is the, is the way forward, is the goal. And I think one of the reasons God gives us delight, gives us things we treasure on earth, is kind of like a sacram- sacrament to show us what it means to love and treasure things. Why did God make having kids so fun? Why did, to show us what it means when he says he loves us like a father. Why did he make food taste good and cuddling so enjoyable? Every good thing comes from above, from the Father of lights. Every good thing begins to show us, just a hint of the shadow of the goodness and beauty of our Father. Jesus is most concerned about what we treasure. If you want to be obedient to Jesus, to follow the Bible, Jesus says that we must do everything in order to inflame our desires and affection for for God himself. If you are like me and have some church background and have spent some time doing accountability groups or whatever, where you check in with some other people of the same gender about how you're doing, I've been struck by how, how rarely we get to our desires. We talk about how we're doing in terms of like our quiet time percentage on the week or some of those things, and it's good to get accountability for those. But what, what I see Jesus calling us to, what might be one of the best accountability questions, is what do you love? What has your heart been drawn towards this week? 
And then we think about uh, evangelism, and we see Jesus do it. This is one of Jesus' main models of evangelism, is when he comes a, a, across someone who either wants to know how to have eternal life or is just openly rejecting it, he tends to go straight for the heart, straight at what they love. A great example is the rich young ruler. In terms of evangelism, this is a slow ball right down the, right down the pipe. This guy comes, and he's a great upstanding citizen, and he says, Jesus, how can I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus goes straight for what his heart loves. He says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man doesn't fight him. He just goes away sad because he had a lot of stuff, and he liked the stuff. This is what Jesus does to us. I think this is one of the main things he does in the Sermon on the Mount, which is why it's so uncomfortable, is because he comes straight for the thing that we treasure, what our precious is. Not because he's mean, but because he knows in his love that he's better than all of that stuff. The whole point of everything all the time is treasuring God with everything that we are and structuring our lives to inflame this desire for God. That brings us to the second point, which is the heart-body power loop. One thing that I believe Jesus shows us all the time in his teaching, and this has been the, a really exciting thing I've noticed in going through the Sermon on the Mount, is that we cannot separate the heart and the body. We can't separate our inner lives, our spiritual life, from the body and our physical life. And I think my hope, my prayer for us as a faith family is that we can kind of embrace this heart-body power loop and see that the heart affects the body and the body affects the heart and this feedback loop. Because I think if we can really embrace that, it will just be a powerhouse for sanctification and growth. It will be a powerhouse for how the Holy Spirit it will be able to grow us. Feedback loops are very powerful. They can either make a speaker squawk, uh, make a relationship strong, or they can dissipate into destruction. But po put it simply, this heart-body power loop is trying to is, is pointing out that it can be used for good or evil. Because what's going on in our heart is going to affect what we do and how we are in our bodies. And what's going on in our bodies is going to affect how our heart is, and, and on and on and on and on. And so if we have those disconnected, then we're going to have kind of a hole in our boat, if you will, and be sinking. I want to see how Jesus does this how Jesus gets at the heart-body power loop. He does it in our sermon text, but I just want to place this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is what we talked about with those heart burger uh, analogies. We had those, those juicy burgers on the PowerPoint for, for like a month and a half straight. Uh, if you didn't like that analogy, you're in luck because we have a different one. We have the power loop this morning. But in chapter 5, flip over there, uh, just a couple pages, and we're just going to look at one example of how Jesus calls us to embrace this heart-body power loop in his teaching. Jesus is, is teaching to the whole person. So Matthew 5, page 1502, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, it says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but to anyone who says, you fool, will be, in, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, 
First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. So what Jesus is getting at here is the heart issue of grace. When we look at anger, and particularly on the front end, anger that would lead to murder, that anger, the root of that anger in our hearts is a, on some level, a denial of grace, a denial that we ourselves are broken in need of forgiveness and deserve punishment. When, if we're mad at someone and we go kill them, we're forgetting all the things that we've done that deserve death, all the things that we've done that need grace, unmerited favor. But Jesus says, hey, it's not just enough to work on the physical behavior just to keep yourself from killing a human. Because if you manage to do that, but your heart is filled with this graceless self-righteousness, this bitterness, this anger, or indifferent towards people that you just write off as fools, then you're not flourishing. You're missing it. And so now he comes to the bottom of the loop, and he gives us a command, something to do with their bodies. He says, if there's anyone that has something against you, go and be reconciled. You go to them physically with your body and with your mouth and your lips and your lungs. You say the words uh, to reconcile. You apologize for how you've hurt them. And when we do this, this physical, horizontal, relational act, it then influences our hearts and causes us to need to really believe that it's by grace we've been saved. It causes us to really live in the truth that, yes, we are sinners and we need grace. And that's what Jesus shows us is the way to deal with our anger, is to live in the reality of the grace that we've experienced. So if you're an angry person, consider when the last time you apologized to someone was, when the last time you were honest about your shortcomings or what you've done wrong. Ask to what extent you feel like the grace of God has become your reality. You might be a Christian, you might be saved by grace, uh, but not live fully in that reality yet. This is how Jesus teaches us. He goes for the heart, and he gives us commands, like with the rich young ruler. He went for the heart, and he gave, him, he gave him something to do with his body, with his body. And the Holy Spirit can use it to help us to, to bring our hearts into, in, into the good life with God. That brings us to our last point. Let me read our sermon text again here. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust, moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is using the heart, body, power loop to get at the greatest commandment, the whole point of everything. It's where we store up treasures, how we live with the things we value, what we treasure is going to shape our hearts, locate our hearts. Now, it's super important to see that Jesus very much encourages us to want treasure, to, to want rewards. So all of chapter 6 to this point is talking about how to get rewards. He says, don't pray like this, pray like this, so you can get the reward from your Father. Don't, don't fast like this, fast like this. He doesn't say don't seek rewards, don't store up treasure, don't have desires. That's actually unbiblical. Uh, it's, it's like an unchristian, non-Christian way to see life, as desires is bad and try to 
transcend our desires. That's actually Buddhism. Christianity says, get you some treasure. Get some reward. Inflame your desires. Seek after reward. Drink and be satisfied. Taste and see that God is good. It's just a question of whether or not our desires are rightly ordered, are pointed at the right thing. It's a question of which rewards you're going for. So to be honest, coming into this text, <clears throat> I thought we were going to be talking about money. Uh, but after studying it, I see that Jesus is actually talking about our precious. Because our, our treasure could be money, for sure, but it could also be lots of other things. In the context of the passage, as we said, Jesus just got done calling people away from seeking the approval of men, of, of other humans. One of the treasures we could have on earth is seeking the praise and approval of men. And if that's where your heart is, God help us, because it will be very fragile and vulnerable, because the praise and expectations of men are about as fickle as you can get. It could be success, or our belongings, or even our kids, or our spouse. Now, obviously, it's good to be successful and get stuff done. Obviously, love our kids and spouses is biblical. It's just the question of whether these good things have become ultimate things. When Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, store up for yourselves treasure with God, inflame your desires for God and his kingdom where it's indestructible. But what he's getting at is these things that, that we value, can we let them point us to God? Do they help us treasure God more? I'm also, I'm also just very thankful that because I think the Bible gives us a, a great example of what a human, a not perfect human, looks like when he's laid up treasure in heaven, what this indestructible treasure looks like. And it's the, it's the Apostle Paul. He says it pretty bluntly in Philippians 3.8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then how does, how does that play out in his life, in, his, in Paul's heart-body loop. What, what, what happens? Well, he has this joy no matter what. He, his body gets thrown into prison, and he just shares the gospel with the prison guards. You try to kill him. He says to live as Christ and to die as gain. I desire to depart and be with God. Make my day. If you torture him, he says, I consider it joy to share in the suffering of Jesus. If he's inflicted with this chronic issue, whatever his thorn in the flesh was, he says God's grace is sufficient for me because when I'm weak, God is strong. You literally can't touch him. And he's not a robot. You know, it says he despairs of life itself and he's open about the things he enjoys. But his treasure wasn't threatened. Where his treasure was with God wasn't threatened. That's the indestructible good life that we're all going for, the indestructible human flourishing that we can experience even in the midst of suffering. When we begin to structure all of our lives, every part, to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. The big question is, you know, how? What, you know, what, is, what does it mean? Is there some kind of chute where we can put our treasures and send them up to heaven? That would be convenient. Unfortunately, uh, there isn't. I don't know if you, if you believe me there. Uh, because all of this is, is heart work. This is, heart work is hard work. 
Soul work is slow work. There's some pithy sayings that you can take to the bank. The, the first idea, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd a preacher 50 or 60 years ago, he says, the first thing is to understand ourselves in the world as pilgrims, children of God returning to our Father. This understanding, I, and I, I say this because I want you to hear it from someone else. I know I say God is our Father pretty much every Sunday, but it's not my idea. We have this idea that we are children returning to our Father someday, that our, that our hope is secure, then we'll have a right view of our gifts and possessions. We won't be Buddhists trying not to love our kids or enjoy sex with our spouse too much or something and keeping our desires down, but we also won't be stuck on those things, treasuring those things as our precious. So the, the first thing is, I guess, just kind of what we talk about pretty much every week. Is what does it look like to li live with God as our Father? The second thing is to consider what precious you're most inclined to go to other than God. What earthly treasures you're most inclined to store up. Because I think if we made this passage about money, a lot of us would find ways to shuck and jive and, and, and not, not really let it hit because maybe we are okay with money or at least we think we are but it could be all kinds of earthly treasures that we store up. It could be approval or significance or comfort or security. Getting stuff done, feeling effective. And so this second point is to just, A, be okay with the truth that we all have a precious other than God that we're seeking to point our hearts away from. All of us do. None of us get out of this alone. It's just a question of what, and I can't tell you. But the Holy Spirit can. So flip in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 139, page 975, if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible. This is a prayer straight from Scripture that I think is super helpful in helping us see what our earthly treasures might be. And so we can turn from them, we can repent from them, and treasure God more. 975, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Asking God to search our hearts and know us, reveal any offensive way in us. Offensive in the sense that we don't love God with all our hearts. It's offensive to not treasure God, the true treasure, because we're looking at other stuff. And so we pray that God, with his Holy Spirit, would search us and know us. And to me, this is so freeing, because it takes the pressure off. All we've got to do is show up and give, give God space and the Holy Spirit space to, to show us what that is. And then there's also a test here. I think it's just so practical. The last part of verse 23 is we can look at our anxious thoughts. David says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Our anxiety shows us where our earthly treasures are. Why? Because our earthly treasures are vulnerable. Because rust and moth, moth and rust and thieves can get in there. So when we find our an ourselves anxious, we don't need to feel guilty necessarily because we're justified by grace alone through faith. 
Instead, we turn to our Father in anxiety and confess that there's something wrong. I'm chasing something else. So what, what makes you anxious? What do you find yourself scheming about? Talking to yourself like a crazy person, like Gollum. Gollum, in his anxiety over his precious, is always muttering to himself, the hobbits have it, I'm going to kill him, you know, whatever, I'm not going to do a Gollum impression. But what turns you into a Gollum? What makes you mutter to yourself and think crazy thoughts and have arguments in your head while you're trying to fall asleep? The point is to find out so that we can turn, not be condemned, but turn and treasure God, turn, return to our Father and his embrace, the only one who can satisfy our souls. So we got the live in the reality of God as our Father, and then we have be curious about what our precious is. And I would just really encourage you this week uh, to meditate on Psalm 139. The whole ch- chapter is obviously beautiful, uh, but just pray this prayer you know, verbatim, straight out of Scripture, and just be still and see what the Holy Spirit might show you. And the last thing that we can do, again, not very specific, is to treasure God is to take our scheming, the crazy, lonely, golem scheming, and turn it into passionate kingdom of God dreaming. See, we're rhyming today. Go from scheming to dreaming. I wanted so badly to turn to Luke 6 and talk about the shrewd manager, but I made a game time decision. That was just too much this this morning Uh, because we see Jesus encouraging his people to to scheme like this dishonest manager to get what they want, just like the manager did. So we, we can dream as the people of God, knowing that he's able to do more than we could ever imagine or ask, pray about and hear from him, what it might look like to make choices with our bodies and our earthly resources to tap into the heart-body power loop. How can we dream for the kingdom? How can we consider all of our lives and ask, what can I get rid of or add or tweak in this physical, earthly, bodily existence that I have to shape my heart to love God more, love God with my whole person? Go from scheming to dreaming. I want to be super clear. This is a question for a Christian, for someone who is already a child of God, justified by grace through faith. Nothing we do or don't do will ever change God's love for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus. What we are talking about is living into the joy that God's love makes available to us. Not earning his approval or earning it, but enjoying him more. If a child is adopted into a family, that's official legal status. Nothing can change that. But how that child lives in the family is dramatically going to affect what his experience of the good life with that family is like. So we want to consider how we live in the family of God, how we're relating to God in others in every aspect of our lives. So last week we talked about food, God help us, and how fasting and food can shape our hearts to love God and taste and see that he's good. And I know I was uncomfortable. But then we can look at other stuff. Like, how do my TV habits shape my heart one way or the other? How does my, my money shape my heart? How does my job shape my heart? Listen, I want so badly to take the sting off of this for all of us. I want so badly 
to make this not as offensive or invasive. It, it feels so invasive. And just end with a joke and a story, and we can go watch baseball. But, but Jesus is going for our heart. What do we treasure? And how can we live in the world so that our hearts treasure God more? How can we live in the world so that our hearts treasure God more? The glory of the gospel is that Jesus lived this greatest commandment perfectly for you and me. He perfectly treasured God with his heart, soul, and mind. And he loved his neighbor, you and I, literally to death. Out of the love he had for the Father, he shows us what it means to seek joy. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he lived the human life perfectly, treasuring God. And he laid down his life for us. He shows us what it means to seek treasure, seek the reward all the way to death. And then he rose again so that we can be transformed into his likeness and to people who love and treasure God. Let's live into this church. Let me pray. <coughs> Father, oh Father, would you hold us as your children this morning? Father, would you, uh, in your mercy, by the power of your spirit, keep us from any condemnation? Would you keep us, in your mercy, from checking out and, and sidestepping this and instead uh, just show up to what you might show us, what you might show us uh, our heart's treasure other than you? I pray, Father, that we would experience just the beautiful gospel miracle of feeling conviction by the spirit while simultaneously feeling the affirmation of your love for us by the Spirit, that we even experience your love more deeply through the conviction because we know that you discipline your children. And Father, I'm overwhelmed by uh, how uh, supernatural this is, that we need you and your Spirit to sh search us and know us. And then even in your mercy, when you make us aware, we need you by your Spirit to transform us and to remove that anxiety and to draw our hearts to treasure you. I pray that you would give us the strength to wait on you, the strength to show up to this work. I pray that you would give us uh, patience uh, in the hope that we know that you will do it and you will complete the work that you began in us. In Jesus' name, amen.